Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio, where we help you navigate confidently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just won't work for Lyme disease. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is number 140, episode 140. And this week's guest is Lyme Ninja, Aaron Murphy. Also, welcome with me to the studio, our show producer and the brains behind Lyme Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and also welcome with me to the studio is the newest addition to our menagerie, Rusty the Dog. Rusty the Rescue Dog. Rusty the Rescue Dog, yeah. He's coming to hang out with us for this recording. So Rusty snores when he sleeps, so if you happen to hear some snoring in the background, it's not us. It's Rusty the Rescue Dog. Yes. He whines when he's not in the middle of things, so he's joining us here today. Yes, indeed. Okay, tell us about this episode. All right. Well, in this episode, you will learn some of Aaron's words of wisdom, when one thing moves, everything moves, about goo syndrome, and how journaling helps you keep track of your mental, emotional, and physical health. It's funny you put that one as the last item. Really, my intention in interviewing Aaron was have an episode all about journaling, She's been journaling since she was a young child, and she keeps multiple journals. So I wanted to pick her brain about what she's accomplished with journaling, how she keeps track of things, what she used journals for. It's really an incredible conversation. And I encourage you, if you haven't started a journal, to start one, especially after this episode. You don't need to go out and buy a fancy book, just any plain paper. She does things now on her computer. She even has this great idea of journaling through taking pictures. So she takes pictures of herself and the supplements. So that way she can kind of scroll through her photo timeline and see what has changed since she started a supplement. And you can really see it around the coloring of your own eyes and the coloring of your skin and the brightness of the eyes. So it's, it's really a fabulous, fabulous idea. All right. Also, we want to give a special thank you to those ninjas who are helping us produce this podcast by subscribing at LimeNinjaRadio.com. You can help us for as little as $4 a month, and we really, really appreciate it. And Rusty does too. Rusty, especially <laughs> Rusty. Okay, Aurora, why don't you tell us a little bit more about today's guest. Oh, and before you do that, I have an update on my arm and what's been going on and the treatments I've been using. So hang on at the end of the interview, and as we close that out, I'll tell you a little bit more about what's going on with this Parsonage-Turner syndrome, which I do think is Lyme-related. Definitely viral and probably Lyme. So anyway, tell us about Aaron Murphy. Aaron Murphy became symptomatic in high school with fatigue, depression, and anxiety. When she attended college, she studied psychology and then neuroscience in an attempt to understand what was happening to her. She eventually turned to nutrition to try and control her symptoms and attended Maryland University of Integrative Health to receive her master's in nutrition. Her journey to health has been over the course of 16 years, and she's found the key to her healing has been allowing herself to feel and process all the emotions that Lyme disease has created. She now works as a computer tech and lives in Philadelphia. Thank you, Aurora. And here is our interview with Erin Murphy. What I want to talk about, Aaron, is how you use journaling. Because you've you've been through, and we'll get into this a little bit, you've been through some major ups and downs in terms of your Lyme journey in the past six to, what, year months with the potassium and your hospital visits and all that kind of stuff. And yes. I don't see how anybody can make any sense of this without keeping a journal. And I want want your thoughts about how it's helped you and in what ways it's helped you and how you use your journal. Because I know you're pretty you're pretty good at keeping a journal. I have a few different journals going on. So I have <laughs> one that is <laughs> I knew I called the right person. <laughs> <laughs> one is specifically all of my ideas. I have it's called my chronic illness brainstorm 
Um, and it's basically anytime I come across anything that I think may be an interesting part of my clinical picture, I put it in this document. And I also have um, what I call Erin's Odd Bodily Observations, where I also put down anything interesting that I come across in my blood work. Um, like, for example, if I take large amounts of vitamin C, my lactate dehydrogenase on my blood work will always show up low. So um, that's one interesting correlation. If I take large amounts of vitamin D, my uh, parathyroid hormone will show up low. Um, so that's another one there that I see. And I just kind of keep a lookout for that so that I'm not missing any patterns in some of the supplements that I'm taking or um, some of the different protocols that I'm trying. So that's really helpful for that because I um, I think a lot about in I take a Tai Chi class and in it our teacher is always saying that when one thing moves everything moves and it just reminds me a lot of biochemistry where when you're taking one supplement it's not like it's just impacting just the vitamin C pathway it's like impacting all of these different pathways in your body um, some of them maybe for the better some of them not so not so great. Um, and so I have that. I have this, like, very biochemistry-focused document where I uh, put all of my observations and the things that I learned that might be interesting. And then I um, also have a journal on uh, a website that it's not really, like, a huge website anymore, but back in the day it used to be great for putting poetry and um, graphic art and stuff. It's called deviantart.com. And I have, like, a little journal on there that's kind of, you know, it's kind of public. If people want to find it, they can, but not many people go there or are readily reading it. So it feels it feels private at the same time, but it also feels like I'm still connecting with the world outside of my house through posting there. And um, then another thing that I did in the past year was I have a friend who is a really good writer, and I asked him if I could send him emails and um, kind of like a journal, but more of like a correspondence. And I told him, I was like, you don't have to read everything that I send you. I just really felt like it was important for me to connect to somebody outside of the world of chronic illness and Lyme disease, and also somebody who knows and values writing as a tool. And so um, I wrote to him a lot. And uh, one interesting thing that he recommended, because I've been trying to put my journals together and to see what comes out of it. I don't know if a book would come out of it or if maybe I can just hold a webinar about things that I've learned. Um, but he recommended going through all of the journals I've ever written chronologically and just start picking out themes, start noticing, do certain symptoms coincide with certain themes that I'm going through, um, do certain people coincide with certain themes. Like it's like, oh, this person taught me a lot about self-love and that's when I learned this lesson. Or, oh, this person taught me a lot about uh, oxalates and their connection to chronic illness or histamine, you know, and kind of just like going through everything. And the great thing that you and I have talked about before is that when you're doing this, you're really doing it from an observation point of view um, where you're kind of looking back at everything, but there's that distance between you and what you've experienced. And it has been really allowing me to pull out the different themes and to, I don't know, just find, I guess, more of the gifts of things that I've learned over the past year, um, because it has been really hard. I, I find that when I'm sick, that it's easier when I'm either just sick or when I'm just healthy. But when I'm in this phase where I'm having, you know, two really good weeks where I feel like I'm just about to reemerge into the world, and then I have two really bad weeks where I feel like I'm losing all the progress that I've made, that that un instability and that up and down is actually harder on me emotionally than when things are just even keel, not so great, or even keel, you know, I'm trending upwards. It's it's harder to to go up and down. Um, but that's a little intro. Oh, a I don't little. know if you want to ask anything else. <laughs> I have Did I just do I the have, whole interview? <laughs> yes, I have a hundred questions for you. And a Yay. comment, but first I want to start with a comment. So right now you just gave us the PhD in journaling. I mean, you've got multiple <laughs> journals and they've got multiple purposes and you've got an online blog and you're putting them together for a book. So can mm -hmm. you, have you always journaled? Even when you, some people journal, they just start when they're either a child or in their adolescence and they just start writing and just keep going. Were you like that or did you pick it up later on? I have at various points in my life. Like I had a little bit of a journal when I was in grade school and then 
a little bit something more in high school. And then when I moved a lot of my poetry onto DeviantArt, I would sometimes journal on there. Um, and then I think more it was the last year where it really became a huge part of my life because that's when I started sending like two, two to three emails a week to my friend and just writing about my experience. And it was kind of helpful. Be- I think what was helpful about that is because I was trying to describe what the experience would be, and I was trying to describe the lessons, like the things that I was learning about my experience. So it wasn't like, whereas in a journal, I might be more focused on, I don't know, like um, kind of, I, I think if I was writing a journal, I might be more apt to complain or to really get into my pain and the emotions of it all, whereas, or not the emotions, because I definitely got into the emotions when I wrote those emails, but um, I think I presented them in a way where hopefully it was like, I hope that you learn something from these emails and I hope that, you know, I am able to learn something about my experience from sharing it as well. And that was cool. Um, that was a different perspective. And, um, I think one of the pitfalls of totally relying on writing and something I've been guilty of in the past is that you have a tendency to repaint your experience as something really pretty and then you ignore the pain. And that was something that I wanted to be really conscious of uh, even in the past year is that um, if I'm grieving, I don't want to just write about grief and write this pretty poem about grief. I want to make sure that I actually sit down with myself and allow space for that emotion and to cry it out or, you know, whatever way grief is expressing. Like, I, I think that words are really great for helping you identify the emotions that you're feeling. But I think as you and I have explored together in the uh, webinars that we did, a lot of times emotions need some kind of action or they need some kind of silence or space to honor them. And um, so that was that was just one thing that I was conscious of as I was writing too. It's like, okay, this writing is really helpful for me to identify patterns and to identify lessons, but it's still my, my, uh, my work to actually feel them and to express them and to make sure they don't get stuck somewhere in my body, to make sure they keep moving out and to be conscious of them and honor them. So are you saying that like keeping a journal can hinder kind of going through an emotional process? Yeah, that's such, such a new age touchy feely way of saying things. An emotional process that means actually having an emotion. Expressing emotion, yeah. feeling an emotion. Let's let's speak English here. I I don't think it does for everyone. Um, I was just conscious of it because uh, an acupuncturist that I was working with in um, 2015 said that I had a gift for making pain sound really pretty, but it made him wonder what was churning underneath the surface. <laughs> and so that was um, something that I was always conscious of in my writing experience. It was like, I, am I am I just painting over this and making it prettier than it is? And am I not, am I using this as a way to deepen my relationship with my emotions or am I using this as a way to avoid my emotions? And so I think any tool, um, and that's, that's something that I actually uh, learned through my journals is that any tool used like, uh, um, what are they called? A carpenter can't use a hammer for every single situation you know, like if you're using a hammer every time you're trying to build a house, you're probably going to build something that looks terrible or is just more destruction than creation. Um, so journaling is like that, too. It's like there's a time and a place for journaling and and how healing it can be. And then but if you're using it all the time, like you're going to that same tool all the time, it can sometimes become a hindrance. But I think, you know, you probably know that with herbs, too. It's like this herb in this particular circumstance is really helpful. But in if I use it all the time or if I take it every single day, it eventually can throw something else out of balance. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how long have you had Lyme disease? I've had Lyme since I was at least 14. That's when a lot of my symptoms began. You sound very young, and so it's been, <laughs> was it to say, a decade at least? It has been 17, almost 18 years. Wow. Yes. And, and, and Go ahead. I was going to say, and it took until I was 29 to get diagnosed. So I really didn't know what was going on with my health for a really long time. Good grief. And during that time, were you journaling about your health or were you just writing poetry? 
I wrote a lot of poetry, and it's interesting to me to see that in the early poetry there was like a lot of themes of brokenness, and I, I just I felt really broken. I really thought that maybe there was something wrong with me, maybe I caused it. Like I didn't know if um, you know it was something I was doing that was making these things happen. I had a lot of neuro- neuropsychiatric symptoms, so a lot of depression and anxiety, and it didn't match with my external experience of the world. Like I really loved my friends. I did well in school. I was creative. I had a lot of opportunities. And yet inside I felt so horrible and I would uh, deal with suicidal thoughts and things like that. And it made me just feel really shameful because I felt like I have all these opportunities and I feel so sad. And it made me think that I wasn't grateful, but I didn't realize that I was just so sick. And like I, I wouldn't be able to go to classes in college if they were before like 9:30. Like I just I could not get out of bed. I would not show up. And so I didn't do as well in college as I as I could have um because of that. And then I would get on my case and, you know, call myself lazy and there's just a lot of uh self-antagonism in the early years because I didn't know what was happening. And um so that re- that reflects a lot in my poetry and even in my journals. Like I would say that the journals were they were sometimes about my health, but they were more like me exploring my dark feelings and and where are they coming from and trying to figure out that aspect of the disease. But I would occasionally write like something like, am I a hypochondriac? I have all these symptoms. (laughs) What's going on? You know, it was, um, I think now that I'm thinking about it, the first time that I really kept a day-to-day journal was in uh, 2010 when I went to, I was working with a Chinese uh, acupuncturist, Chinese medicine acupuncturist, and he um, told me that I had goose syndrome. He found out that I had a parasite. He didn't use the word Lyme disease at the time, um, but when we started working together again later, he did say that he speculated that I had Lyme disease, but it sort of doesn't matter if you're treating goose syndrome. It's part of that whole package. And I started to keep a daily journal then. And again, it was... I would talk about symptoms, but it was more about, like, just trying to get a grasp on, like, the complex feelings that I was feeling at the time. Um, like, I remember writing a journal or a journal about uh, self or self-control and how, how it's this limited resource and how at the time, you know, I was told I have a parasite, you need to cut out sugar. I tried to cut out sugar like cold turkey, which was crazy, and I did, had no idea it would make your emotions so erratic. I was literally crying at my desk one day, and my coworker walked by and was like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm fine, I just, I just gave up sugar, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and people are like, okay, like they don't understand. And, um... And while I was trying to give up sugar, I also tried to stop drinking on the weekends. You know, I was like 24 or 25, and it was a big part of our social life. And as I tried to stop drinking, like my drinking started getting out of control because it was like I was changing too many things at once, and I was having a hard time. And I found all these articles online about how self-control is this limited resource and um, it's best to make small changes. And so I was I was writing a lot about that um, and other topics that I came came up against that were challenging observations to me. You know, it didn't make sense to me. I'm like, why can't I just give up alcohol and sugar at the same time? And it's like, oh, self-esteem or self-control is, is um, finite and you need to sort of use it wisely and, and do make, make slower changes. And, and that was helpful. So I used it for things like that at that time. Now, if we were going to go over to your house, do you have a bookshelf full of these journals? Or are they all electronic I have I have some handwritten journals, and um, in 2010 I moved it to like a Google Doc, and and then this year I have some that are on DeviantArt, and then I have some of the emails to my friend, and then um, when he recommended going through everything chronologically and sort of taking notes, I moved everything to a Google Doc again so that it's all there. I, I separate it into different themes, um, and then I have a handwritten journal again where I'm I view my Google Doc and I go through and I read my journals and then in this uh, little handwritten document on the side I've been collecting lessons that I learned throughout each each journal so I'm up to number 26 <laughs> so far <laughs> so and I'm only like maybe one quarter of the way through so I imagine that this is going to be like 
101 lessons from, you know, Lyme from, disease. From Aaron's and, Lyme journey. Well, that, yeah, sounds, that sounds like a book right there. <laughs> I was thinking if it was, if it was going to be a book, I would want it to be maybe a little more creative and not just, not just in self-help format, like, because I kind of would like to exercise, um, my creativity, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how, I think the book will, will decide for itself what it wants to be. And then since you're going right now through this process of going through your old, I just want to get a sense of like, you're sitting in front of a computer or do you have these, you you know, these composition books strewn all over (laughs) your living room. And what, let me back up again. What I'm trying to ask is, Talking with people, one of the things when I'm interviewing and working people with Lyme disease is I'll ask them, well, you know, do you think you're getting any better? Mm-hmm. And so many of them say, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm wondering if part of that isn't that there's no documentation. If your brain's affected and your memory's not great and you've got all yeah. these up and downs and wild swings and so our 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 brains are primed to remember the really high times and the really low times and forget everything in the middle. You know, right. if we're having all these extremes and if the, if the low extremes happen to be more than the high extremes there, you know, do we just kind of do some mental math and say, well, I'm, I'm having a really tough time now. So or do you find that going through this, you can see your progression over, I mean, 17 years is a long time that yes. you've gotten better and you can say without a doubt in your mind, yes, you know what? I am better. I'm not a hundred percent yet, but I'm definitely better than I was two years ago or a year ago or six months well, ago. And you know what is interesting? And it's something um, that a friend and I were talking about the other day is that, uh, and I think you bring up a really great point. So, so another thing that I didn't mention that I do, but for the past year or so, I also started taking like a ridiculous amount of selfies. Like I take pictures of my fingernails. I take pictures of my tongue. I take pictures of myself. And I kind of started looking at it as like Darwin's journal, like where I have like, I have these um, emails and stuff that are kind of going through my emotional experience and, and what I'm going through there. And then I have this document that's documenting my more physical experience. And then I have these pictures because um, it's true. Like there are times where you really feel like all of your progress has just been undone. And like, I, I just actually came up against that in the past week where I just feel like, really, am I going back down into this dark hole again? And, but I can't deny, I can't deny the pictures. Like I really can't deny that I am getting better on some level. Um, and then also one thing that I want to mention is that, um, healing is not, you know, linear or one dimension. It's so sometimes my physical health might be backsliding a little bit, but it's like, wow, you know what? I am really standing up for myself to everyone. Like I am speaking my truth all over the place or, or, you know, this week I feel really super connected to some kind of, you know, spiritual presence or to nature or to whatever, you know, your sort of higher power is, whether it's something more that you're going to find in a science textbook or something that you're going to find in like a new age bookstore or in some kind of cathedral or something. Um, so it's like, there are different domains that are moving at different times. And sometimes I'm making leaps and bounds of progress emotionally while I'm backsliding physically, or sometimes both of them are happening at the same time and it works out well. Or sometimes I made some kind of, you know, mental breakthrough where, I don't know, I let go of some old self-limiting belief. And, um, I think that the journaling really does help me keep, uh, track of that. Like, I remember um, in the fall, I had a really, really bad setback, and I I just didn't know what was happening, and I wasn't sure, um, you know, I didn't know if I was, I, I really didn't know if I was dying. Um, and at the same time, in my emails that I was writing to my friend, it's like, I feel so lovable. Like, I feel, I all I do is lay on the couch and watch TV, and I feel incredibly lovable, and that's huge for me, because... I always used to equate being lovable with being able to give something or to offer something to the world or, you know, I was lovable because I'm smart or I'm lovable because I'm creative or I'm lovable because I show up for friends, you know. And, of course, when you get really sick and you have Lyme disease and, and other chronic illnesses, a lot of those labels fall away and you're just left with yourself and you're left with the question, am I lovable for just existing? And I remember feeling that 
I really felt, yeah, I'm lovable. I am lovable. I used to call it, I'm loved as a lump on the couch. That was my phrase. <laughs> and um, so that was an example where my, my physical health was really tanking, and yet I felt like my emotional health was becoming more resilient than I could have imagined. And I only, I could see that in the emails that I was writing. I could see the progression. So without the documentation, mm-hmm. do you think you would have grasped onto this lovableness or do you think that would have kind of just faded away? And it's, no, it's an unfair question because it happened the way it happened. But how important right. was the writing in really solidifying this idea that, wow, I'm lovable just the way I am? I think the writing is really helpful because it helps me I, I could look through my old writing and see, wow, I really didn't think that I was worthy of love, you know, and I could see it in the words that I was using. And I think without the writing, I wouldn't have realized how deep that pattern went. Um, I also had some, you know, experiences outside of writing of people pointing out that pattern to me and helping me realize it. But but then I, I think that it was the writing that helped me see the progression of moving away from that pattern. And I do think, I I don't know if it would have happened even without it. I I think maybe it wouldn't have because writing was such a big way for me to interact and to express um, for the past year. Like I wasn't like out with friends bouncing these ideas off of them all the time. So it was only through my own writing and reflecting upon my writing that I could really make that progress. I do think if you're more mobile and you're out in the world and you're talking and having like engaging dialogues about these topics, it's probably just as possible to make the progress. But when you're home and you're spending a great deal of your time with yourself, the writing is sort of a way to bounce, like the way that you would bounce ideas off of a friend. It's like you're bouncing ideas off of yourself through your own writing. And it's like, oh, interesting. Like I noticed that I start using different language when I talk about myself, like starting, you know, at this point last year and all of a sudden I'm moving towards being able to say, oh, I'm lovable or being able to say, yeah, you know, if somebody asked me out on a date, it would be, I I have something to offer. Like it's, I don't know, stuff like that. You sort of start noticing that your, your vocabulary about yourself has changed. I want to move now into more of the biochemistry. Mm-hmm. I know that you are fascinated by all the interactions of our diet and our genetics and how the illness affects us mm-hmm. plus supplementation. Now, just to give people an idea, I I don't remember what you're taking now. However, I in the back of my mind, I have in mind that you're like a normal wine person. You've got a closet full of stuff that you're that you take during the week. So about how many supplements, different supplements would you take over a week's time? Um, probably around like 12 to 15 at this point. Okay. So not um, a crazy amount, but still fairly, fairly good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm taking a lot of uh, standard process stuff. I'm working with a um, chiropractor in Westchester who uses muscle testing and a lot of standard process. And what I do like about them is that they're food based. Um, because I found that a lot of the synthetic vitamins were starting to cause their own issues where, you know, like if I was taking synthetic B vitamins, it was just blowing out my potassium. And, um, you know, if you take, I don't know, you you take, I I spend a lot of time in like the magnesium advocacy group. And if you're taking a lot of magnesium, you also have to watch your potassium and sodium. And it just felt like I was micromanaging everything and it was getting exhausting. And, so I like this idea of having a large majority of food-based supplements. Um, and then I do I do take potassium. I take magnesium outside of that. Um, I take Restore. You you interviewed uh, Zach Bush, and that, that gave me, like, a huge boost for a few weeks there. I really thought, I was like, this is it. I'm back in the world. Like, <laughs> this is all behind me. And then I just crashed again two weeks ago. So, I mean, I don't think it's anything to do with the restore. I think something else is uh, is afoot right now. Um, well, you and know, then let's, I, I take... Let's just stop there for a second. I want to speculate here for a second. Sure. So one mm-hmm. of the things the restore is purported to do is help your gut biome 
which yeah. is depending on how healthy you are, is anywhere from, well, if you're real sick, 5,000 different species of bacteria to anywhere to 15 or 20,000. And mm-hmm. I would imagine that as it goes through different phases, it's almost like one of those computer games where you're building a civilization. Like it goes through uh, ebbs and valleys. It goes from highs yeah. and lows, right? Um, where kind of the good guys are winning the battle right now and then the bad guys kind of get reorganized and they fight back. So I, it's not surprising to me that that would have kind of an up and down type of uh, type of effect. And and that's why I want to talk about in terms of keeping track of this because sometimes those ups and downs happen right away and dramatically, like you say, yeah, this is definitely the restore that's doing this. Yeah. However, sometimes it can take six weeks, eight weeks, and who's going to remember exactly what they started or if they've skipped a few days in between or anything like that. So how, I mean, how much do you track and do you just do kind of an overview or do you get down to the nitty gritty and record everything every day? What are you doing to keep track of what supplements you're taking and what their effects are? Um, well, one thing that I got the idea to start doing uh, more recently, too, is that when I add something new to take a picture of it, so that then it's in with all of my pictures. So, uh, you know, how I'm taking pictures of, like, my my um, myself, my tongue, my nails, and just trying to um, get an idea of that so that I can go back in time and be like, oh, you know, like, my tongue really started to look good once I added this one supplement in, or my skin really brightened when I added this in, so that I, I know better when I added it in. Um, I think that that's a, a good way because I do, I think there's room for me to get more nitty gritty with, with documenting what I'm taking and, and when a lot, like when something becomes a definite pattern, like, okay, B vitamins absolutely make my potassium drop. I put it in my, my document or, okay, when this happens, um, I experience this and, and when it, when I've reproduced it, I put it in, in this document, but a lot of the things that are just floating around in my head um, are not in the document. Sometimes I do put them in a little notes app on my phone, and especially when I'm going to my practitioner, I see him every two weeks. Um, I definitely put in items that I want to talk to him about as they come up um, because because it's hard. But it, it does it gets really challenging because, like I said, when one thing moves, everything's moving, and and some things, like you said, are delayed. Like I found out that. Um, when people take high doses of vitamin C, if they have a problem with oxalates, it won't show up for about two weeks. So you might be feeling fine. You're like, yay, vitamin C, it's so great. It's helping my collagen, and I feel like my immune system is boosted. And next thing you know, two weeks later, you you feel like absolute crap because now your body's dumping a bunch of oxalates because um, in people who are prone to produce a lot of oxalates, large amounts of vitamin C over the over the recommendation can eventually lead to the production of more oxalates. And that was happening to me. And I didn't know because it was a two-week delay. Um, so uh, same thing with, with like, Cipro. So Cipro we'll for, hang, on, yeah, hang on for a second. So how did you figure that sure. out? That the vitamin um, C was going the, the, and essentially well, an oxalate dump causes histamine, so you have allergic-type reactions, right? Yeah, yeah. Like your histamine will get worse, and it leaches. Well, what happened was, I noticed I noticed that eating like leafy green vegetables like having spinach or Swiss chard was making me feel awful. Like it would make all of my muscles hurt. It was cooked, making my heart cooked rate. Cooked or uncooked? Cooked even. Okay. Um and, but I was also well actually I was also having some green drinks from Starbucks at ah. the same time and I was um on and off taking large amounts of vitamin C and I, I just had no idea about oxalates. The only thing I knew about them was, oh, they can cause kidney stones. And I'm gonna, but I didn't yeah, know. I'm going to interrupt again here. So what's large amounts? I mean, are you talking about like 10 grams a day? Are you talking about 2 grams a day? Um, Anywhere between like 3 to 5 grams okay. of liposomal vitamin C. Okay. So 3 to 5 milligrams. And now are you making this liposomal three to five yourself? Grams. Or were you... Uh, no. no, I was I was using a brand of, of liposomal vitamin C. Okay. So that's... Just so everybody knows, that's you take it liposomally so it doesn't irritate your gut, so more of it gets absorbed, and you can get very, very high amounts in there. Now, were you cycling on and off, or were you doing this steadily? Like, uh, no, I was cycling. I, w- I was cycling. Um, and I, I just couldn't figure out what was causing these, like, muscle pains yep. and the insomnia and, like, all of these horrible symptoms. Um, and 
and I couldn't figure out why, like, why leafy green vegetables? You know, when, when I feel like when you're sick, people are like, oh, increase your intake of leafy green vegetables, you know, and um, I, I don't know. I, I didn't know about this whole world of oxalates until the last few months. And um, so I was in a, in a group. I think I was in, in the group for uh, people who have had bad reactions to Cipro. And I was just like, what is happening to my minerals? Like, I feel like my magnesium and potassium keep dropping and it's really causing disconcerting symptoms at night. And I noticed, you know, it's after leafy green vegetables, whatever. And then uh, someone kept mentioning oxalates and that a lot of people who have had um, exposure to these antibiotics, th- there's a few reasons why they think that somebody might develop an oxalate problem. Um, one of them is that Cipro and some of the other hardcore antibiotics can reduce the amount of oxalobacter formagenes, which is a bacteria in the gut that helps us break down oxalates. Um, there, there are some other reasons, like low B6 can cause an oxalate problem. Um, some genetic issues can cause oxalate problems. I think, I think low B vitamins in general can, like, like B1, I think thiamine is another one that can cause oxalate problems. So there's, there's a few reasons um, that I'm exploring. I just ran another organic acids test and um, I order a U-biome test to see if I have oxalobacter formagenes and how that's going. Um, and uh, from there, oh, so then I was in the oxalate group on Facebook, and I was asked, I was just like reading things, and I came across the vitamin C connection, and what's really, really interesting to me, and I have no idea if anybody who is listening can like offer input here. So remember I said whenever I take high amounts of vitamin C on my blood work, my lactate dehydrogenase goes low. And if you Google low lactate dehydrogenase, it comes up that sometimes it can come from large amounts of vitamin C. However, I always just thought lactate dehydrogenase was maybe involved in reducing lactic acid. But guess what it's involved in? Forming oxalates in the body. So lactate dehydrogenase um, converts something into into oxalates. I forget exactly what, something like glycine or I don't know. I, I don't remember. I don't have the picture in front of me. Um, but my thinking was, I wonder if in people who are prone to have oxalate problems, that when you're taking a lot of vitamin C, which can get converted sh- directly into oxalates, I wonder if your body being very smart lowers your amount of lactate dehydrogenase so that you're not converting even more things into oxalate if you're already having so much, so many oxalates from the large amount of vitamin C. So like I couldn't find, I could find that vitamin C lowers lactate dehydrogenase, but I could not find why. And I just think that was fascinating. Like I wonder if it might be something um, useful for people who are trying to figure out if they have an oxalate problem and if, if when they're taking vitamin C, if their lactate dehydrogenase goes low, I wonder if that's an indicator that somebody has an oxalate problem. So so that's why someone like me needs a journal. <laughs> because I go on these wild goose chases and and I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. But that's my observation. Well, you know, that is... I'm thinking back, I'm having flashbacks to kind of how I imagined scientists when you're learning about science and people like Pasteur in the 19th century and that they would have, they would keep meticulous notes. And that was part of the scientific method when they introduced you to the labs work. Remember yeah. that? And you got your lab coat and the goofy goggles and all that stuff. And they talked about taking notes and how important that was. And yeah. really... You know, as somebody with Lyme disease trying to figure this out, you're essentially a scientist self-experimenting because nobody Mm -hmm. has the answers. And we're asking questions that are past the cutting edge of science. We're asking questions that people don't have the answer to. Some, Some of this they do. So some of the answers are clinical or people's experience, some you know, like I said, yeah, you know, it's funny. In my practice, I have people take vitamin C and they tend to have oxalate problems. Okay, that's interesting. Now you get into yeah. the science of it and the science is like, uh, no, we don't have any idea what's going on there. So it's a clinical right. observation and may be valid for a certain type of people, but we don't know what's going on there. So th- the ability to take some notes and to understand what's going on with you, right? Mm-hmm. Now, and, and to be able to offer that up to other people, you know, there may be people have similar genetic patterns. There's no doubt about that. So your experience right. may help somebody else, but it's not a guarantee. It's not an overall solution. 
And, right. you know, that I think that's one of the problems with doing various protocols that are out there is the protocols are generalized, have to be generalized to help the most amount of people. They may or may not help you. You know, high vitamin mm-hmm. C, liposome vitamin C, people doing this for cancer and they'll tell people that, you know, that were successful with it. Yeah, this is the best thing I've ever done. I feel so much better on it. It's made my cancer go away. I make liposomal C at home by myself. And then you get somebody like you who said, well, you know what? This is interesting because once my body got caught up with C and now that there's an excess in there, uh, it's not so great for me. My body right. doesn't dispose of the extra very well at all. And I might be better served doing something else. And there's no way to make any sense of this unless you're keeping some sort of journal. I love the idea of the photo journal, you know, kind of yeah. keeping pictures of, okay, here's when I started taking this bottle and here are my pictures. Yep. Now, do you take pictures of yourself every day, once a week? Uh, almost pretty much once a day because one thing that was really weird to me is that I could go from like looking like, like haggard and just like, I'm on my deathbed to like looking really like I'm about to turn a corner, like from one week to the other. And that was, that was blowing my mind. And it was also, I mean, I, th- I noticed that like Lyme people share things a lot. Like they'll share things on Facebook and social media. And I think it's because they like can't believe their own experience. You know, it's like, I can't believe this is actually happening. And when you share it with other people, it's like, look, like, do you see this? Like you almost want I'm not crazy. in some ways. Yeah, you want a little nod from people like, yeah, you looked great this week and, and you know, last week you didn't look so good. <laughs> and um, it, it that actually helped me figure out the histamine problem a little bit too because I was realizing that my, you know, my acne would get bad when I was eating high histamine foods and my eyes would get puffy and just my face in general would sort of have this like swollen look about it a little bit and that was histamine. Um, and so that was pretty cool to see that through pictures. And, like, one thing that's really cool is that even now during my bad weeks, I don't look nearly as bad as I did, like, last year. You know, like, last year was, like, scary when it would get bad. And, and this year, it's, like, even on my bad weeks, I don't look as bad, um, which is reassuring. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's helpful for me to take pictures a few times a week and, and see, like, you know, because even if I, t- I take pictures and it's like, oh, you know, I look a little puffy this week. Did I add something in that maybe increased my histamine or... Um, and it, it can feel like, like overkill at times, um, being this meticulous, but at the same time, I, I try to view it as fun. Like I realized when I was going through my journals, I realized a lot of what the past few years has been is like learning how to reframe things and redefine things. So instead of being like, oh, I need to keep this meticulous journal, it's like, ooh, I'm like a new Darwin and I'm going to keep this meticulous journal and, and, uh, it's like, oh, what what does the errand look like today? And it's like, oh, let me take a picture. And then I get a picture of what the errand looks like today. And it's like, oh, what did I eat? And kind of see it as this fun, playful thing. Um, that makes it feel less intense. Like, oh, my God, my life is just me documenting every move. Um, but it's like, no, it's really helpful. And it, it has been incredibly helpful for me for both diagnostic purposes and just emotional processing and understanding my experience and self so let's sum up here a little bit. So you have creative journals where you're expressing yourself, like with the poetry, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. You have kind of the, what we normally think of a journal, kind of a self-exploratory where you're writing to yourself about how you're doing and, and kind of mm-hmm. in the third person. And it does create some, I mean, we didn't get into the psychology of it and the meditative quality of it. There is some power to stepping back and writing about yourself and it can separate. Like you said, your, your acupuncturist said that you wrote about pain so beautifully. It does allow us to separate from what we're experiencing to realize mm-hmm. that there is something there. There is a spirit. There is a soul that transcends whatever physical and mental things, emotional things are going on and to, right. uh, to help isolate and strengthen that uh, part of us. So, so that's, so this creative, we've got this journaling part, we've got this technical kind of keeping track of vitamins and notes for your doctor. I have a patient who regularly, she has Lyme disease, she comes in with her notebook, and I love reading you know, the notes over the past two weeks. It's so helpful because yep. mm-hmm. you know, our memories just aren't that good in memory on Lyme disease. You remember that old, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs ad with yes. the frying pan. You know, this is your memory of Lyme disease. It's more like a sieve, right? 
And it's just, right. our memories are pretty civvy anyway, but you add Lyme disease in there and who knows what we're actually remembering. So writing that down. So, so there's that part. And then kind of this, this old fashioned, even though it's through email, this old fashioned correspondence with your friend is very interesting because that brings up a whole nother, what we're willing to say to other people is much different than what we're willing to say in a, in a secret journal. So that helps mm-hmm. frame things in another way. So that's very interesting. And this last thing, this photo, this photo journal, I love this idea. And mm-hmm. I wish somebody would build an app so, like, you could, you know, t- take, like, the same size selfie of yourself and, and then see a time lapse over, like, two years or something. You know, yeah. see your skin tone change and see your eyes change and the bags under your eyes disappear and all that kind of stuff. It would be really incredible, something like that. And then kind of on a little sidebar, you'd, you'd have something pop up as like when I started taking, you know, I started taking, I don't know, liposomal vitamin C. And then you can right. fast forward through this thing and say, wow, I look worse after taking this. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah. You know, I love, I love how you're keeping track of this and how important it is. And Thank you for having this this conversation because I I think it's such an important part of healing from something chronic. You know, when something's acute, and I mean even like something we're dealing with with the month, you know, even or rehab after knee surgery or something like that or shoulder surgery, which could take six months to a year, you know, it's steady progress and you go through it and you don't really need to keep track. But something complex like Lyme disease and the co-infections and if you've got mold exposure and then the heavy metals become a problem because you're depleted and you know, on and on and all the viruses going on and the ups and downs that come with it, if you're not keeping track of it in some way, there's really no way. And, and most of us aren't that disciplined that we have this practice to begin with. And right. it, it, I, I think that's so important. And I also want to give you the last word in, in your thoughts about journaling and how it's helped you. Well, one thing that you just said that um, it made me think of is that I think the body really speaks when we give it an opportunity to. And I think it's constantly trying to speak to us through the symptoms. And I don't mean like it's, you know, my liver's talking to me at night. I <laughs> I haven't, my brain hasn't gotten that bad yet where I'm like hearing voices of my organs. <laughs> um, or, or I don't know if that's getting bad or if that's like another layer of healing. Who knows? <laughs> um, but I really do sincerely think that it speaks and it's always giving us this feedback. And instead we call them symptoms. And it made me think a lot about um, who's the guy who did the five elements acupuncture. Worsley. Uh, yeah, and he he gave a, a talk one time, and he said that um, that silencing symptoms is like gagging a screaming child. And when I heard that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's such a crazy, violent image in my head. And yet, I think he's tr- he's it's true. I think that a lot of times when we experience something unpleasant, our immediate impulse is to get rid of it as soon as possible without stopping to think, Hmm, did I change anything in my diet this week? Did I do anything different? Did I, you know, was I exposed to anything different? Um, did I have like a certain emotion that was dominating this week? Um, I don't know. Did I sleep funny? Did I sleep in a way that I don't usually sleep? Like we don't do that self inventory right away. Our, our impulse is just get it away from me as soon as possible. And I, I get that because I've had some symptoms that are so horrifying and scary that I just want them to stop. And yet at the same time, I think that we all have that opportunity whenever something comes up to do a self-inventory and to say, what what supplements did I add new supplements this week? Well, what, what do those supplements interact with? You know, like you really want to just get the systemic picture and, because it's so complex, and like I said, even healing has these many different layers. There's the emotional and mental and physical, spiritual, and that's something like writing really helps me keep track of the progress, and I find it to be a way to give my body the opportunity to really speak to me in a way that I might be able to turn into meaningful action. Erin, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much. And I look Thank you. forward to speaking to you again and to see what All else right. you've learned, especially when you write that book. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. I'm working on it, McKay. I really enjoy listening to Erin. And one of the reasons is that she just drops these like 
I'm not sure whether to call them like wisdom bombs or knowledge bombs or something like that, but <laughs> I don't think she would be insulted if you called them wis- <laughs> wisdom bombs. Yeah, she's she's gained a lot of knowledge and wisdom over her years and what she said at the end, the body speaks when we give it the opportunity to. It's it's so true and that's one of the things that journaling can help you come to terms with, uh, bring it to the surface, give language to. Because really, the body's language, the body's like a dog. body's like Rusty the Rescue Dog. Mm -hmm. It can only express in so many ways, right? It can whimper, it can bark, it can chew things, or it can mess on the carpet, right? I mean, that's kind of like the dog's version of language. You know, it can wag its tail and things like that. But there's not, it doesn't have words. The body doesn't have a language. It has sensations, and if you kind of let your intuition, let your get the internal critic out of the way, the internal sensor out of the way, and just write, a lot of times your intuition will give words to what the body is trying to express. And sometimes the body's trying to express this, like express something simple, like "Wow, that food really isn't agreeing with me," or "That supplement you started <laughs> two weeks ago was the wrong one." I mean, sometimes it's something simple like that. But sometimes our unconscious uh, pain and uh, uh, re- repressed emotions are, are giving rise or getting expressed through a physicality. So some pain can start, you know, acupuncture theory talks about that, Chinese medicine, that uh, pain, the physical or any other physical symptoms can start at the emotional level uh, and get expressed through the physical and vice versa. You know, just like being sick and pained uh, can give rise to uh, emotional symptoms as well. And we see that all the time with Lyme disease. And we go more into depth with with this particular theme with Aaron's past interview with us, number 71, when we talked about grief and yeah. uh, her grief ceremony. Mm-hmm. So if you want more about, uh, hear more about what Aaron uh, really got to with her journaling and how it helped her release and really have a breakthrough with her Lyme disease, uh, episode 71 is, is fabulous. Yep. Also, if you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, we'd appreciate it. If you'd support our efforts by subscribing, go to LimeNinjaRadio.com, and you'll see the subscribe button under the featured episode. Thanks, Aurora. And here's an update on my arm. I keep calling it the arm, but really, it's my arm. (laughs) It doesn't walk around by itself yet. We're not the Adams family over here. No, we're not. (laughs) There's no thing, exactly. The bottom line is my arm is significantly better in two ways. One, significantly less pain. So I'm, I was able to sleep a couple times this week in a bed. And I know some of you Lyme ninjas out there can appreciate what a big deal that is. <laughs> so finding a position to be comfortable in up to that point where it wasn't pressing on my nerve, and it didn't matter whether I was lying on that shoulder or lying on the opposite shoulder, just gravity, the weight of my arm, you know, without the muscle tension created a pinched nerve. So it was really quite uh, uncomfortable to sleep. So being able to sleep for a fairly significant amount of time, I'm able to sleep now for about six to seven hours, which is just a luxury at this point, it seems, uh, is really good. And one of the main interventions that's helping a lot is uh, is LED light from the LED man. And I was using it so much, I broke the power cord. Yep. And I didn't realize this, but he's got a lifetime warranty on his product. So I sent him an email. He said, oh, no problem. I'll send you one right away. It was so wonderful to have that level of service. You don't often get that these days. And the red light and the infrared light just almost it's almost like a pain eraser it really the achiness in my arm with the red light uh helps significantly and i think it's also helping regenerate the nerves at at a faster rate than normal would be so i can begin to move my arm right now yeah it's it's actually it's really exciting how much movement he's regained in his right arm yes now this doesn't mean that i can scratch my nose yet but uh with a little running start i can i can kind of fling it at a doorknob (laughs) and grab the doorknob and turn it so but that's that's progress it's it's really quite astonishing there's still very little strength I, i can't lift anything uh in it 
even something like a key is too much weight to lift. So there's still a long way to go to recover the the movement of the arm and the strength of the arm, but it is beginning to respond. Now, I'm finishing up the first month of the Cowden protocol, so I definitely did that. Uh, I've created some liposomal vitamin C, and I've been taking that on and off. I've been doing other nutrition, including extra vitamin D. I've been doing some of Bob Miller's supplements, uh, including glutamate scavenger and that's the main, oh and nutrition accelerator and, and a couple other ones I can't remember off the top of my head what they are right now so some targeted nutrition uh, let's You've been see what's there on the keto- yeah I've been measuring my ketones in the morning with the ketonics uh, breath acetone and that corresponds uh, I just listened to a talk by the inventor it corresponds very well with blood sugar and pretty well, like he said, within a percentage point with blood sugar, and then fairly well with the the beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the circulating and usable form of uh, ketones in the body. And so uh, I've been blowing orange and red in that with that. Uh, that just means there's quite a bit of ketones there. So the I think the ketogenic diet is super important. It's anti-inflammatory. Uh, it also helps uh, turn off the mTOR pathway and the mTOR pathway is really uh, uh, an aerobic pathway I don't want to say aerobic what yeah aerobic pathway and uh, no anabolic I'm thinking about steroids anabolic not aerobic yeah. well it, it it's part of the building process so when the mTOR is turned on your body is in a building mode and really when the body's uh, creating a lot more cells it's really a messy process and there's quite a bit left over to clean up so there's really two modes this is really the whole Chinese yin yang thing so the body goes through these periods these growth spurts and then there's supposed to be quiet periods where the body can clean up after itself and going on a ketogenic diet what happens is the body goes into this cleanup phase and these mTOR pathways get switched off and so then the body starts scavenging just kind of leftover proteins that are hanging out in the cells in the DNA in the RNA so it really cleans itself up and also it's incredibly anti-inflammatory so the next thing we're really taking a look at here are my nitric oxide levels and really the physiological nitric oxide not the inducible nitric oxide so we're looking at mitochondrial NOS uh, ENOS the endothelial NOS uh, the neuronal NOS, and we'll leave one out. So they're, they're, that, that's, uh, we, well, INOS is the inducible one. That's okay. the one that causes all the inflammation. So four of them. Some, I think I've heard recently there's a fifth. But anyway, there's definitely a fifth. There's nitric, nitrate, nitric, no, wait a minute, nitrite, nitrate, <laughs> nitric oxide pathway that gets started in your mouth with your saliva and with the bacteria in your mouth, the biome in your mouth. And then it turns, uh, there is some in your large intestine as well. So there's those two pathways for producing nitric oxide. And then there's the skin biome produces. Matter of fact, the, the mother dirt people are doing a hypertension study using their skin probiotic to reduce hypertension to bring down because these ammonia eating bacteria get on the it still goes ammonia to nitrate to nitrite to nitric oxide so it helps relax the blood vessels but it turns out that the nitric oxide is doing so much more and i've done some saliva tests for nitric oxide and they're at mine's low and it goes up a bit if i really concentrate on eating some greens so i really think part of my issue here was Excuse me, my nitric oxide, my basal nitric oxide levels were deficient. And I think that set me up for this extra inflammation when I did get the virus. I believe it was a virus um, that attacked the, the nerves and just created extra damage, so collateral damage. When the body tried to fight off the virus, it created all this INOS. And because there was already a significant amount of INOS in my system, because my system's trying to overcome the lack of uh, basal uh, physiological NOS that the the inflammation and for whatever reason and you know the the virus was near these nerves uh, the leftover inflammation this extra inflammation really just did uh, a number on the the myelin sheath on these nerves so that's what I think's going on so we're going to see if we can't get my basal 
nitric oxide levels up, see if that can't help with the last little bit of the inflammation. So I ordered the Mother Dirt product and squirted it under my armpits. <laughs> and it's funny because my other daughters were around, so we're all squirting ourselves under our armpits with, yeah, uh, with bacteria. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll, so great family time, great yeah, family bonding time right Nothing there. <laughs> like uh, biohacking your family. So that's what's going on with my arm. I'm really quite... Uh, excited. I've had to shut down my acupuncture practice because I can't needle right now. So it is, it is a serious temporary disability. At the same time, I'm very optimistic that things are starting to move in the right direction. So that's the update. And to wrap things up here, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast could not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know that Bigfoot once caught a glimpse of a ninja and has been hiding in the woods ever since. That's a good one. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.